We are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John together, and we come this Lord's Day to John chapter 12, verses 37 to 50, uh, closing chapter 12, but also uh, coming to a close and, and, and a great breaking point uh, in this Gospel of John. With the text before us, the public ministry of Jesus will come to a close. And chapter 13 begins, if you will, the private ministry. Now, all along, Jesus has had a private ministry to his disciples. But you'll notice a, a great transition. If you were to look at chapter 13, it, it begins in this way. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come, he starts telling his disciples, let's gather for the Passover meal, the Last Supper. So start chapter 13 uh, begins that Thursday in Holy Week, that Thursday in the Passion Week, his private ministry to his disciples. And you'll see him uh, before the crowds and before the, the rulers, mostly silent. So a transition is happening. And, then, and, and it's a significant passage before us. So I encourage you to follow along in, you, in your Bible as I turn to chapter 12 of the Gospel of John and read verses 37 through 50. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe because Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Then Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. I have come out, I have come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. This section uh, closes, uh, as I said, this, this portion of the, of the book, the Gospels, the first 12 chapters. We see that by just skipping back to half a verse uh, that, that preceded us in John chapter 12, verse 36. We read 
in, in the second half, these things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. So that really marked the end, as it said, when he was hidden from them. He withdrew from that public ministry. What we are seeing here is more of, a, of, of the gospel filling in, rather summarizing the ministry as it has been up to this point in Jesus' life, and, the, and especially the responses to that ministry. So as, as Jesus had finished off, remember he, he, he spoke of um, how his heart was so moved as he thought about the gospel, as he thought about the cross. And that was brought on, remember, when these Gentiles came in and wanted to see him. With that, he, that was kind of a, a visible, spoken expression of the time of transition that was coming. The nation of Israel was turning its back on, it, on the Lord. And the Gentiles were coming to him. And this marks the transition point in that. Well, God is not fully and finally forsaken Israel. They're on a shelf. Um, Paul speaks of a, a partial hardening on the nation and, and speaks of the blindness of the nation. But with that is an, an open door to the Gentiles. And so as these Gentiles come and the, the nation of Israel turns, that brings to mind this is the hour. Up to now he's been saying, it's not my hour. It's not my hour. Now he says, my, this is my hour. And his heart was so greatly moved. And then we're told he withdrew from public ministry. Starting in verse 37, we see, first of all, John talking to us about the responses to Jesus. The Lord had spoken so much truth and with such power. Though he performed miracles that revealed his character of mercy and love and also revealed God's endorsement, God's authentication on his son. Yet, they did not believe in him. So our Lord has come in fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy. He is, he, he, again and again, he would point people, if you don't believe, look at the signs. These are signs. These tell, these, that's a, a, a wonderful work with a message. They're showing who I am as Messiah. And he preached God's word and was faithful. And yet we're told, and yet they did not believe. Of course, that's a general statement, right? I mean, there were some who believed. We can think of the 11 disciples. Judas Iscariot didn't, but the rest of the disciples did believe in Jesus. In the book of Acts, when they're told to wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit, there'll be 120 gathered. And we're told in 1 Corinthians that at one point, 500 saw him in his resurrected state. Were all of those believers? I don't know, but, but maybe. So what that tells us is there were some who had come to faith during this. Though we're told, here John kind of summarizes, the nation as a whole was in unbelief. The nation as a whole was rejecting him. But there was a remnant. 
there were some who believed, and he reminds us of that. Again, one of the things I think John is really hammering home is was the, was the rejection by the nation, was the crucifixion of Jesus, which will come later, but was this rejection by the nation a failure? When you, again, I've mentioned, when you talk to your Jewish friends and share with them that Jesus is the Messiah, a promise, they'll say, wait a minute, where is the Messianic age? Where is the glory? Where is the kingdom? Did he fail? Is something wrong? And so to help us understand that, John takes us back to the prophecies of Isaiah 700 years before the time of Christ. And so when he said in in verse uh, 37, although he did all these things and said all these things, they did not believe in him. Verse 38, that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1. I'll read it to you. Look, you could follow along in the Gospel of John. Who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He's quoting Isaiah 53. Now, many of us recognize that Isaiah 53 is one of the most powerful Old Testament passages that points to Jesus uh, 700 years before he came. It speaks of him as the suffering servant, as the suffering Messiah, as the rejected Messiah. And so you see right there, he begins by saying, who has believed our report? It's, it's sort of a rhetorical question. The answer is, what it's a saying is, no one has believed. And so it's a way of saying, nobody believes our report. No one believes the message. That word report can have the idea of that which we say but it also has the, or can be taken as that which we have received. It's based on the word to hear. Who's, be, who's believed this message that we've received? And he goes on, and, and again, no one has. And, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's, a, that's a, another Old Testament way of saying God's power. You read uh, through the Old Testament, you'll see references, God's outstretched arm. That doesn't say that God actually has an arm. But often when we, when we want to say someone is strong, you know, we don't say look at their ears, right? We hold up their, our arms. He's strong. It's some of the uh, hymnody that we're singing in our home these days reflects that. You know, God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. What? His arms. His arms. And so who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So Jesus has brought his message, starting off with, the, with John the Baptist. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, prepare the way. And Jesus calling people to repentance and, and preaching a message that explains, you know, yes, you have the law, but you've been externalizing it. It's a heart message. But it, with, in addition to his preaching, he's shown his miracles. He's shown his miracles to show his power because that authenticates he is God's messenger with God's message. They didn't believe the message or the miracles. They didn't believe the words or the works of Jesus. 
verse 39 and, and 40 tell us, Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah had said again, He has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn so that I should heal them. Now John takes us to Isaiah 6. In the opening of our service and our call to worship, we read verses 1 to 8. Isaiah saw the Lord in his amazing glory. And God said, who will go? And remember, and, and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. So, so he saw God in his glory. And, and this passage is, is, is the call of Isaiah to prophetic ministry. Isaiah 6 is when, I, the, when Isaiah was called of God to be his prophet, to be his messenger. He saw God in his glory and was overwhelmed. And what did the angel do? He, he, he saw, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of unclean lips. You know how James says that uh, the tongue is, is one of the hardest things to conquer. And so when, when Isaiah wanted to saw his own sin, he saw how he spoke. And among the people of unclean lips. And what did the angel do? He brought a coal to cleanse, if you will, symbolically cleanse his lips. Who will go for me? Isaiah says, I will go. And then God announces to him in what follows. Well, here he says in verse 10 of Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6.10, Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their heart and return and be healed. In the previous chapters of Isaiah, God had declared that Israel was like a sick and dying body. Israel had, had been involved in all kinds of sin and, and rebellion. God sent prophet after prophet and said, you know, forsake these idols. Forsake this wickedness. And they would not hear. They would not hear. And so now Isaiah's message is one of judgment. It will bring a judicial hardening from the Lord. The language is, reminds us of how God dealt with Pharaoh back when Israel was in the land of Egypt. And Moses went to Pharaoh and he gave a message from God. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, let my people go. And Pharaoh's first answer was, I don't know the God of Israel. I don't know Jehovah. I don't know Yahweh. And what he's, what he's saying there is, I don't recognize him. He has no standing in my court. He knew lots of gods, he thought. And in fact, claimed to be a god himself. But he says, I don't recognize your God, Israel. And so God sent judgment after judgment, plague after plague, and remember, just to make it absolutely clear, it was the Lord God doing it. Moses would say, you, you can say, when do you, here's what God is going to do. You, you say when it'll happen. And he said, he gave him the time, and that's when it happened. Just so there was no question, this isn't some fluke of nature. The sovereign God is sending his judgment, one plague after another, until finally it was the death of the firstborn that's the center of the whole Passover festival. And every time... Pharaoh rebelled. And so there's, a, there's the picture of what also happened in Israel. 
messenger after messenger, message after message, continued unbelief, continued rebellion, and finally comes the announcement of a judicial hardening. And it reminds us of Romans chapter 1. Remember when, when Paul talks about the, the wicked nations who, who forsook the truth, who, who covered up the truth that was clear in their heart and exchanged the glory of God for an idol. And so instead of worshiping the creator, they worshiped the thing he created. And so finally God gave them over to their sin. He didn't cause them to have sin he gave them over, have it your way. Have it your own way. He gave them over so that their sin can, became increasingly controlling. That's a judicial hardening from God, a hard concept to, concept, to contemplate. But God is, gave over Israel to a judicial hardening. And, and John now, 700 years later, says... In the days of Jesus, you could see that as well. Israel prayed every day that God would send Messiah. And he arrived as promised, as predicted, on schedule. If you look at the prophecies of the Daniel's 70 weeks, and Israel refused to believe. As a whole, there were the exceptions. But the nation continued in unbelief. And so now, John's saying, here is the judicial hardening. Just as that was spoken of in Isaiah, now it's spoken of in the nation of Israel. As, as God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, now he hardens the heart of Israel. Therefore, they could not believe because, as, as Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts, He's giving them over. Okay, you, re, you want rebellion? Okay, I'm giving you to your rebellion. You want unbelief? I'm giving you to your unbelief. It's, I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, in heaven, the population will say, is, is the, the people of heaven, will, the phrase that describes them is, as they say to God, thy will be done. Those who populate hell, are God says to them, thy will be done. Have it your way. You refuse to believe, you refuse to submit, you will rebel. He gives them over to it and hardens them in it. A judicial hardening. Romans chapter 11, verses 10 to 11 in Romans chapter 11, verses 10 to 11, Paul speaks of this as well. Speaking of Israel, let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Paul will argue, yes, God gives them over for a time, to judicial hardening, but the nation is not completely forsaken, not completely abandoned. And he speaks of the concept of a remnant among them. And in setting Israel aside on the shelf, he opens the door to the Gentiles. 
Isaiah had hard things to say. As he spoke of God's judicial hardening on the nation of Israel that was so manifest in the life of Jesus. He closes chapter 12, verse 41, uh, John does, in John 12, 41. He says this, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Of whom was Isaiah speaking? Messiah, Jesus. And so who is this his glory? Who is he whose glory he saw? Messiah, Jesus. Notice again verse 41 says, These things he said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. When, when did he say these things? Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Holy, holy, holy. And as that vision is, brought, is drawn to completion, who will go for me? I will. And the hardening is announced. So when did he see this glory? When did he say these things? When he saw his glory. Whose glory? John tells us that the holy, holy, holy God of glory he saw is Jesus. Is the Son of God. Now again, technically, it wasn't Jesus, right? We mentioned, I think, this on Wednesday night. Because he isn't Jesus until the incarnation. That's his, that's his, that speaks of his human nature. But this is the pre-incarnate Son of God who is the manifestation of the glory of God. That incredible, one of the most exalted passages of the manifestation of God's glory is the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate existence. That's what John says. When did he say these things? When he, he saw him, when he saw his glory. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Singular for that is a seraph. Seraphim, plural. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. One cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That is the Lord Jesus Christ and his pre-incarnate existence. That's what John is saying, chapter 6, verse 41. It reminds me of the passage in, in chapter 8. In verse 56, Jesus said, Your father, speaking to the unbelieving Israelites around him, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And they said, Why? You're not even 50 years old, and Abraham has seen you? What's Jesus' response? Before Abraham was, I am. The present tense. He is the always existing God. He's the eternally existing God. Jesus is the Yahweh, the Jehovah God of the Old Testament. There's one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and, and Jesus is the Lord God. 
amazing truth. Remember, what did John say as he opened this book? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the end of the book, why does he say I'm writing? That you might know that he is God. What is the profession of Thomas there in that chapter 20? My Lord and my God. John doesn't want us to miss the point. Jesus is the Lord God in the flesh. I have to think of John thinking about that. How he would read, and he obviously liked to read Isaiah chapter 6 and the manifestation and thinking how the, the temple filled with smoke and, and shook in that vision. And I wonder if as he writes these th- and thinks these thoughts that he for three years was in the presence of the holy, holy, holy Lord God and didn't quite grasp it. So one response was primarily of, of unbelief and, 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 and that's not a failing, that's it was the plan, it was predicted. And it also reflects God's judicial dealings with the nation as he's, he's, he's hardening them, giving them over to their unbelief that he might give over grace to the Gentiles. But it wasn't all unbelief. And so verses 42 and 43 speak of part of that remnant, if you will. In verse 42 Nevertheless, I say, even among, nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they didn't confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Though the nation as a whole rejected Christ, not all rejected him. There were some who believed, even among the leadership. And we can think of, for example, a Nicodemus, whom we've already met in chapter 3, and later on in Jesus at the, at the grave, there's Joseph of Arimathea, both members of the San. Sanhedrin, Sanhedrin. But apparently, they kept it quiet. They did not confess him. Remember, there was one time where, where Nicodemus says, well, um, you know, don't we usually meet with or investigate before we pass judgment? You know, he's trying to gently suggest a question according to legal proceedings. But he doesn't stand up and say, gentlemen, know this man. I've met him. I believe in him. He is our Messiah. They're, they're, well, they've been said they're in the secret service. They're secret believers. But they are part of that remnant. And we're told in, in Romans 11, God, in, in his dealings with Israel, though the nation will go over into unbelief, there's always a remnant, a portion kept. In chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I also am an Israelite and the seed of Abraham. So he says, I'm evidence. God has a remnant. God will not totally forsake Israel, because look at me. I'm an Israelite. He's skipping down to verse 5 of chapter 11. Even so, then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God in his grace made a promise to Israel. And he keeps it. But the church today is predominantly Gentile. 
as the nation of Israel is predominantly in hardened unbelief and blindness. Because the Pharisees wouldn't confess, John says, that they should be put, afraid they'd be put out of the synagogue. So these secret believers were fearful believers, afraid that because an edict had already been decided, anyone who follows Jesus will be kicked out of the synagogue. And that would uh, isolate them. They might lose their families. They might lose their jobs. They, might, they, they definitely would lose their, um, their position and their participation in the Jewish community. And John tells us, John does some heart surgery and shows us what the heart issue is. Verse 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. Sadly, these secret believers were more concerned what people thought than what God thought. The Bible tells us the fear of Man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. That's Proverbs 29, 25. When we're more concerned about what man thinks than what God thinks, we're in trouble. Matthew Henry said, An awful sense of the divine perfections is the best antidote against the fear of sufferings. Did we fear God more, we should certainly fear men less. There was a book years ago written, Your God is Too Small. The whole point, what Matthew Henry says is, if we had a right view of the holy, holy, holy God, we would have no fear of man. And so, that's their problem. A.W. Tozer, another godly man, previous generation, to be right with God has often meant to be in trouble with man. I'm sure many of you could speak of that in some context or another. It might be a family conflict, a work conflict, or something, but to be right with man often means to be in conflict with God. Would it surprise you that Mr. Spurgeon has some thoughts along this line? Oh, he paid an incredible price for his faithfulness to God. But hear this, to please everybody is as impossible as to make ice and bake bread at the same moment in one oven. Give up the wretched attempt. Be a man and be not a mere man pleaser. How blessedly easy I feel in my work for God. But I owe that ease to the fact that I have, not, I have no one to please but my Lord. When I preach, the last thing that ever occurs to me is to ask myself whether any of you will like it or not. It is no wish of mine to give offense, but it has never occurred to me to think whether you'll be offended or not. I do not think you would respect me if I made my preaching an occasion of seeking to please you. If it pleases God, it will please you if you are right. And if you are wrong and it does not please you, well, it never ought to please you. By the way, this is this turns on its head the vast majority of the modern church in America where the focus is on how do we please man, how do we draw man, how do we appeal to man. And Spurgeon said, never occurred to me. My task is to please God and leave the rest to him. And if I'm pleasing man who's at enmity with God, what does that make me? 
apparently there is a type of butterfly called the dead leaf butterfly. That's its nickname. It has pretty bright colors on one side, but on the other side it looks like a dead leaf. Fascinating how they named it that. And so why does it do that? Well, it can lie down there on the ground or against a tree, and it looks like just a dead leaf. It doesn't look like a tasty butterfly. And so it avoids, to make a connection here, it avoids persecution and opposition by looking like a dead leaf. That's a picture of Christians sometimes. We don't want to stand out, and so we act like a dead leaf. We act as if we are spiritually dead. We can follow the path of the dead leaf moth. We can blend right in by acting dead, not showing the life of Christ in his life. But is that what we're called to? Again, recently I've been reviewing some of the hymns of the past. One of the grand hymns is called This Little Light of Mine. It says, I'm going to make it shine, right? Hide it under a bushel? No. The dead leaf moth tries to act dead and hide his life, and the secret believer is acting dead. We're not called to that. We're called to be faithful to the God who always sees. Trust him. Well, then we go down into verses 44 to 50. Jesus cried out in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And he who sees me sees him who sent me. And My translation says, Then Jesus cried out. It, the better translation is, And Jesus cried out. So it's not a narrative sequence here, but just saying, This is something Jesus did. He said, If you've seen me, you've seen God. So he's made it clear and again and again. He and the Father are one. He and the Father are in agreement. If you've seen me, you've seen God. And only Jesus can say that. Isaiah never would have said that. Moses never would have said that. I certainly wouldn't say it. If you've seen me, you've seen me. Join me in looking at God. But Jesus could say, if you've seen me, you've seen God. How can he say it? John 14, 6. Hopefully you could quote that first. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So in verse 46, he says, I've come as light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. So here, why did Jesus come? There it is. That's his mission. I've come as a light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. He brought the light of the gospel message. He brought the light of salvation. And those who are trusting in him, who've come, been born out of darkness into light. There's a warning to us. He came to bring light into the world. When is it that darkness is most dark? When we've stepped out of the light. Have you ever noticed that? You step out of the bright noonday sun and, and walk into your house and you have to stop because you might, tr- you might trumble over something. It is so dark and it takes a while for your eyes to me. And I, I mentioned I, I wear glasses that uh, 
They're, they're built-in sunglasses in the sun, so I've got a, I've got a doubly weight. It's, the world's dark for a while. Nothing worse, nothing darker than the darkness that you walk into out of light. Christians, as children of God, we are light. We don't belong in darkness except to bring the light of Christ into it. Verses 47, 48, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Sounds like John 3 again, doesn't it? He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I've spoken will judge him in the last day. He said, I didn't come to judge. See, isn't that what they thought Messiah? Well, if you're Messiah, get judging them, the Romans. He said, I didn't come for that. I came to bring a message of hope and light. But if you reject me, you don't receive my words, then you have judgment already. That's your condemnation. And the very truth that you heard from Jesus will be the evidence brought against you in the judgment day. That's what he's saying. Christ preached his message, presented himself as Savior. He didn't call down fire on those who rejected him. Remember when he was with his disciples in the garden? The soldiers came. Peter pulled out the sword. And he said, put your sword away. Do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he will provide me more than 12 legions of angels? I love that scene. I always imagine, and I'll probably talk to some of the angels when I get to glory and say, tell me about that scene. But I can almost see them straining. Lord, let us go. We can deal with these Romans. (laughs) This whole empire will be gone in 10 minutes. (laughs) Give it to us, Lord. He said, that's not why I came. I didn't come to bring down the fire. I didn't come to bring the angels of judgment. That's coming. But not now. That's not why I came this time. Go forward into the Revelation chapter 19 and you'll see Jesus on a war stallion, not not a humble colt, and the hosts of heaven joining him as he comes in his second coming. But the first coming brought a message of peace and light. And he makes it clear, verses 49 and 50. I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command. What I should say and what I should speak. He says, he said that all along, hasn't he? I am bringing you the message from my Father. Verse 50. And I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. I speak for God. I speak his word. As I was reading this, it was interesting. I was in my own reading, uh, reading the book of Deuteronomy. And I thought, oh, that sounds just like chapter 18. Speaking of the prophet of promise, the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18, verses 18 and 19, Moses said this. 
God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among you. He's, this is God speaking to Moses. I will raise up a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. It shall be whoever will not hear him, hear my, whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Jesus is almost quoting those words as he's saying, I have been given God's words. These words will be used in judgment against you. Moses warned the people. I brought you God's law. There is one coming who will be like me, but greater. He will have God's word. You will hear him or you will perish. This is, so these, this passage before us is John's summary. What did we just see? As we look at the 12 chapters, and we see Jesus coming in all kinds of contexts, preaching his message and showing the right arm of God's power, and what has been the response of God's people? Unbelief, rebellion, mockery, and indeed plotting his murder. And Jesus withdrew and hid. A picture, I think I mentioned on Wednesday night, this reminds me of Ezekiel when, when the glory leaves the temple. God's glory departs. Here in, in, in a similar judicial way, God's glory departing in Jesus pulling away from the nation. There'll be no more sermons. There'll be no more miracles for you, Israel. Instead, the hardening, God giving you over to your unbelief. bringing light to the Gentiles. What is our takeaway from such a, a passage? I always feel the obligation to bring it home to you. If you are yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, do you hear the clarity of his warning? It's a wonderful offer of hope and salvation he gives, light in darkness, life eternal. But he warns, if you do not receive his word, if you do not receive with faith and repentance, turning from sin and turning to Christ as Savior, then the very one you reject will stand in judgment over you. Many like to look at Jesus as a kind man, a good teacher, and whatever else you may fill in. He's all of that and more. He is the holy, holy, holy God before whom the holy angels tremble. And he will come with judgment. And we will each stand before him, either recognizing our Savior and casting our crowns before him and saying, what am I doing with this crown? You're the one who won it. Glory to you. Or we will stand before him in eternal terror the one I rejected had offered me salvation. If you have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, please 
Do not miss this opportunity. You notice there is a truth in Scripture. You can see it in other passages like Hebrews 6. If we reject his truth that continually comes to us, there can come a time when God will give us over to unbelief. A blinding of the eyes, a heart, a callousing of the heart. We could never know from our eyes when that is happening in someone's life, but it's a reality of Scripture. And so do not take for granted the grace of God. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, thank him for coming, for showing you the light. And may I say there's a challenge to us? We're not called to the secret service. We're called to be light in darkness. We're called to show forth Christ. May God give us the grace and courage to do that faithfully. Oh, but what would people think? What would people think? That's not, an, that's not, that's not a valid question. The, issue, the question a child of God asks is, what would God think? I remember one time, someone on the college campus, they, they believed in track ministry, and if they saw someone sitting over there on the little, one of these little walls by the garden, the bushes behind them, this guy would come up behind them in the bushes, sneak a little track and set it on the bench next to him and go. Well, that's better than nothing. <laughs> that's better than some of us are doing at all. But it wouldn't have been that terrifying to actually look him in the face and say, here, or in so many other ways. Um, may God find us more concerned about wanting his glory than man's glory. Because man's glory is fading. God's glory is eternal. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this overwhelming summary the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for his faithfulness to your word. Lord, I do pray for each and every one here to know Christ as Savior or come to now to believe in him. And Father, as we are here gathered, we, we join our hearts together. Loved ones and friends have come into our minds. We pray and lift them to you, Father. Oh, Lord, bring the light into their darkness and use us as instruments according to your will. Father, may we say to you, loving Father, may our greatest concern is your pleasure, your glory, rather than the pleasure and glory of this fallen world. Help us, Father, to be found faithful as we serve Christ. I pray this in his blessed name. Amen.